Democracy's bodyguard is on holiday, and the culprit is not just the 2020 pandemic. By bodyguard, we mean journalism. The structure that holds politicians accountable reveals human rights abuses and exposes society's issues, either big or small. The global pandemic is one more sharp rock in journalism's already full shoe. Besides the inevitable monetary consequences of COVID-19, modern journalism faces loss of funding, the rise of social media, and even government interference. But, as Professor Marianne Laurie from Malta's university explains, these are obstacles that we must face together. How has the pandemic affected Malta's media outlets? Is recovery still possible? And may there be a silver lining to forced journalism reform? In this episode, we discuss if journalism can and should be saved for the price of a coffee. So, Ms. Laurie, besides teaching, how have you contributed to the awareness of the risks that journalism faces today? The risks journalism faces today. So, within, obviously, my lectures, I refer to it directly and indirectly, because sometimes you have to be careful in lectures, uh, about how important it is to have an independent media. So that I stress from year one. I obviously teach social psychology and media studies and media psychology. So that lends in perfectly to pass on my message on the important role of journalists. So I do that regularly, irrespective of what is happening now. I've been doing it. Besides that, I also try to contribute actively by taking part in the media itself, mostly the traditional media. I use radio, I use television, and I use uh, public fora where I speak about the importance of independent journalism, why we have to give full respect to journalists and full autonomy. I think uh, I am doing my share, accepting this interview was part of that. I felt it is a duty to accept, you know. Not that I'm going to change the world, but slowly, slowly, even if some people are listening to us, probably the people who are listening to us are already persuaded and convinced of our message, but still. Every little bit helps. Every little bit helps. So here, this is another contribution. That's great. And I think uh, there is something important about remaining in touch with people who are already on your side, especially in times like this, um, the pandemic, where we might begin to uh, get quite negative and start to think, oh, well, you know, it's it's all it's all going in, in a bad way. And so and stop caring. So it's still important to have that outreach, I think. You have quite a varied background. Uh, why the interest in psychology? I started studying psychology when I was a mature student, as a mature student, because oh. I used to teach at Stella Maris College for about 10 years. Then I met somebody who was a psychologist, Father Alfred Darmanin, who just sparked my my, my interest in psychology. He inspired me. And I was part of the first group to study psychology in Malta. Really? 
Yes, and it was not offered at university at that time. We we studied with the seminarians at Talvur II. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that's a funny start. It was very interesting. We enjoyed it greatly. Then uh, we fought, uh, literally made our, our voices heard, and we, we were accepted back at university. And we, uh, the first department of psychology was headed by Father Alfred Darmanin, and I... I graduated from this department and so many years later I was a lecturer at the department and now I am an old person at the department. <laughs> so, wow. When, when did it start? So when did uh, psychology you know, be established at university? So in 1985, I believe, or 86. I'm, I, I'm not sure whether it's 85 or 86. And we were a group of eight. Now our intake, we've been told, next year is 200. Can you imagine? That's amazing. <laughs> the jump from eight people to 200. So we were, eight people were really cared for. We, we really had a good training. After that, I went to the London School of Economics and I studied social psychology, which again inspired me greatly. And th there is where I, I, I took media on, the, the study of the media, because at the University of Malta, I studied both psychology and media studies. And then, funnily enough, at the LSE, it was the media studies modules which, which really helped me in the understanding of social psychology. We had a very, very good lecturer, Sonia Livingston, who, who, who wrote a lot about media. And that is, again, another inspiration. Plus, the tutors I had in Malta, like uh, Father Joe Borch, he was my mentor as well. So I had Father, da both priests, funnily enough, I had Father Darmanin, who was a mentor in psychology, and I had Father Joe Borch as a mentor in communication studies. And those came together in my PhD, which I did with LSC as well, where I, I uh, sort of evaluated a campaign in social marketing on organ donation. At that time, uh, few people were giving their organs. It was quite a taboo, if I'm not mistaken. No. Oh, many, pe many people thought that the church was against organ donation, and that was one of the findings. So they, they told me things like, we shouldn't uh, donate our organs because when we go up to heaven, we won't be accepted without a kidney, for example. Things like this. Wait, wait this was what people thought. What people All thought. Right. So, and many other things. So, we addressed these false beliefs directly through the media. We had a social marketing campaign, a very effective one, because the when I charted the number of organ donations in the next six months, one year, five years, 10 years, the, the, the number kept rising. I'm not saying it was only due <laughs> to my single uh, three-month campaign, none at all. But it surely paid, paid but, a difference. But yes, it made a difference because other people became aware. Everybody started pitching in. The media started inviting people to talk about organ donation. So it picked up. So this is why I believe that media is very important and very effective very effective mm -hmm. because you might just I, I decided on doing uh, selecting the topic of organ donation because I was sitting down and I heard Lubondi talk about organ donation just like that and immediately I was inspired and I told my husband I said that is the topic I'm going to choose 
for my PhD. I had already started reading about persuasion and how the media can change attitudes. So I said, yes, that's a great topic. I'm going to, 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 to focus in changing attitudes towards organ donation. And that is what my PhD was about. I think it's brilliant that you, you managed to you research something and you implement and you actually see the results. It was immensely satisfying. Uh, that's so interesting. And it sounds like you you entered journalism from your experiences in psychology. Yes, I, I must clarify, I'm not a journalist. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to take credit for something that I'm not. But because I studied the media, then I could accept to be on boards, editorial boards. I was on I have three different editorial boards. I'm still on one of them. Mm -hmm. So at one point, I spent a number of years on PBS editorial board, mm -hmm. and I believe that we made great changes there at the public broadcaster. Later on at NET, and the, now I am in Beacon, uh, the Beacon Media, and I am on the editorial board. And that is where decisions on content are taken. Right. And that is very important. Mm -hmm. You have to be really, you know, independent and fearless. Mm -hmm. Pressures are there always. Yes. Don't do this or do that. Mm -hmm. You know, and advertising revenue is an important factor of that because these media cannot survive without revenue. It's as simple as that. Unless you have advertising revenue, they have to close down. And this is what's happening mm -hmm. abroad mostly, but maybe some, some, some smaller agencies in Malta, the revenue has decreased and some organizations must uh, close down. That is only one aspect, but it's very real money. Uh, agencies, media agencies need money need support they need physical support they need moral support psychological support but they also need financial support yeah uh like anything i mean i i see this is such a problem in so many sectors and it's it's scary what's happening now um but i'd like to i'd like to ask about the rise of brand journalism so some professionals are suggesting that transparency be the new objectivity so as long as publishers state their conflict of interest, it doesn't matter where the money comes from or if the piece is commissioned for marketing purposes. What is your take on this? Well, um, I do not agree fully for this reason. You can state that uh, this program is being sponsored by uh, Agency X or Y, that is quickly forgotten, but it depends on the integrity of the journalist to see whether the strings, the purse strings, are a bit stifling, whether they are ignored completely or whether they're there somewhere in the background and instead of using this word, he or she uses that word. So I am hesitant to agree completely. Mm -hmm. I fully agree that they should be transparent, fully agree. But transparency can be misleading because you might know who sponsored the program. You might know who, who the owners of a particular media organization are, whether they're businessmen or, 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 or an institution or a political party. You may know that, but 
when people are listening to you, yes, they know it. But is it, are they conscious of it all the time? So if I understand correctly, you're saying that transparency gives people a false sense of security rather. Right. I would put it that way. So, yes, I am all for transparency, but it can, to use that word, what the words you used, give you a sense of false security. Because even though you are transparent about who is sponsoring the program, who is advertising, well, we sometimes know and we sometimes don't know, who is giving you the aid uh, the aid and uh, with what conditions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then it's useless to say we're being sponsored. I, I take it to understand that there is a risk of being given this information okay I've been told who the funder is but over time forgetting that or being having that information being put to the side and then there is perhaps um, a subconscious influence of what you're reading without having that conscious recognition all the time about what might be stated in what you're reading based on where the money is coming from. Yes, I believe that that could be the case. And besides that, that the journalist himself or herself might be constrained because it's not easy to be independent. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to be independent, especially if you're in, a, in an organization whichever organization, political, profit-making, where money is so important. So if you're told that Sponsor X is giving you so much money, you're going to think once, twice, three times whether you're going to say anything to rock the boat with Organization X. Because at the very, it's the hand that feeds you. It's the hand that feeds you. And that's why uh, organizations like The Guardian and others do not accept anything except donations. Because you give a donation, and that's it. No strings attached to donations. Well, I, I would generally I believe that when we donate, it is no strings attached. But what if it's like a donation from a ah, large entity? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I didn't have those donations in mind. Certainly, those big donations can do more harm than anything else. Because, uh, as I said, uh, it happened. It happened in our country. Our media, rightly so, were aided. They, they received state aid, and that is very good. But don't you think it had an effect on the people, on the journalists, on the organizations, on mm -hmm. who decided what goes out and what doesn't go out? I believe it has. Especially so when we weren't told who was given what and under what conditions. They might tell us till the end of time that there were no conditions given Pardon me, I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't either. I'm very skeptical about it, I have to say. But I'd like to, at one point you mentioned that, you know, the journalist, a specific word that they use or the language that they're forced to use. Um, that's the language that a journalist uses in an article. Does it play into social psychology? Is what I'm trying oh, to get Oh, definitely. At. How? You could elaborate. You see, one very basic, simple, straightforward research finding is that um, if you tap into the emotions of people, emotions like fear, pity, real core emotions, then you are going to get your message, you are more likely to get your message through. So, if journalists are wise and intelligent 
and know how to use the right words, they're going to bring a change, a big change. Now, if journalists do it for us to become more aware of what's going around us, more independent, more outspoken, and remove that fear, then that's great. But if, on the other hand, <clears throat> some journalists, because I don't want to give the impression that all journalists do it, no, not at all, but if some journalists use it to instill fear, to shut people up, then they're using their great gift wrongly. I mean, it, it stops being journalism and becomes propaganda, I imagine, Exactly, at that point. exactly. And I may say, because this is an independent uh, whatever, hopefully, that, <laughs> yes, that's what be, what is done in political party media. And that is yeah. why we, I, uh, together with a number of others, think that political parties shouldn't have their media setups because it becomes propaganda most of the time. Not all the time and not all by, by all journalists. But yes, often or sometimes, let me give, let me say sometimes. Uh, let's give the benefit of the doubt. Yes because I don't want to offend the journalists who do their work well, mm -hmm. because there are journalists who are doing very good work. But others will just be a mouthpiece for the political leaders. Nothing more, nothing less. I have read, though, that propaganda can actually be useful in the sense that you are delivering s small bites of information in a way that is very easy to comprehend and digest. So perhaps, actually, in some cases, propaganda can be useful if we are sending out the right messages and the truth. Right, so the definition of propaganda here is important. Mm -hmm. I was using propaganda, the way you used it, um, in the sense that we traditionally uh, talk about and with negative connotations. Mm -hmm. However, if you give another definition to propaganda the way you described it, then yes, by all means, we can do a lot of work with, 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 with propaganda as you defined it, mm -hmm. not as is normally defined out there. Then maybe we should establish definition for propaganda before we you know, move forward. Uh, would it be accurate to say that propaganda is using information or misinformation to appeal to a person's emotions to further an agenda? Yes, you used information and misinformation. If we use misinformation, to me, I would use the word propaganda. If you use information, I would use I would define it as social marketing, the marketing of ideas okay. which are good, fine, which help society, which are prosocial, which help us remain open. So that is that is the, the clue, whether it's information or misinformation, whether it's true news or fake news. Okay, mm -hmm. but earlier we had mentioned that there is, uh, as in, I, I agree with your definition, I, I think it's solid. But earlier we had mentioned, like, there's an appeal to emotion. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, personally, I started raising my eyebrow a bit when you appeal, because it's very easy when you appeal to emotion to, you know, not modify the facts, but to choose which facts to show and which to hide. I feel that we should be leaning more towards 
like in journalism, for instance, an appeal to, to reason, an appeal to logic, and we forego uh, emotion. Because what ends up happening is we, like, they create a narrative, and this narrative might be misconstrued, let's put it this way. I don't agree completely, and I'll explain why. Sure. Let's take an example, the immigrant, regular immigrants. If you just give facts, people will read them, 20, 200, so many arrived there in the whatever. But if you s go and see how they live and describe how they live, that's where the emotion comes in. And that is where you change people's attitudes towards them. Yeah. So that is what I meant by an emotion. The message must be emotional to change things. Mm -hmm. You cannot always be logical and cold and, and, and factual, factual always. Factual always, but combine that with emotion. If you want to change attitudes, if you want to change something in your society, you cannot be factual and cold. The message will come through less. At least that is what the research says. It's not what Marianne Lowry is saying. <laughs> it's what research says. Well, and Marianne Lowry. And Marianne Lowry, yes. I completely agree with you. Um, I'm actually quite interested in this kind of research myself because this is where science falls short, in fact. You have information. You can deliver that information to various publics and nothing changes. But when you elicit an emotional response, that is where you get change. And I also, in that line of thought, don't see anything wrong with having an agenda because at the end of the day, we all have an agenda. So if we want people to empathize and have compassion for immigrants who are dying, a lot of them as they try to make their way towards a better life, then yes, we're going to have to have an agenda where we're saying, I want people to feel really bad. I want people to feel guilty. I want people to start thinking um, about other lives rather than just being consumed with their own. And we need to. I totally agree. I totally agree. Should this agenda be uh, transparent, though, to bring it back to what we were saying before? So long as you know that this organization has this, these goals, not even agenda, let's call them goals. Mm -hmm. So long as you know that this organization has this particular philosophy, um, should that that should be out there always yes always mm -hmm. we're uh, transparency is always must always be there we're not discussing transparency because we all agree it should be there loud and clear mm -hmm. so yes so to summarize we agree that has to be transparent and factual mm -hmm. uh, so it's all right to appeal to emotion so long as this emotion is grounded in fact and yes, it's not misinformation. Yes, exactly, exactly, yes. I mean, I think that's made perfect sense, honestly. I mean, there's no... <laughs> I really like this kind of journalism. I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you describe what the media landscape is like in Malta, especially in the times of the global pandemic? Well, not a very happy media. <laughs> Obviously, for the reasons we mentioned earlier, advertising revenue dipped for, for many organizations, not for all, funnily enough, but for some media organizations, the advertising revenue dipped. In fact, our public broadcaster is uh, in the red, greatly so, in the red. Uh, and so are other media organizations. And the reason is people were not advertising. We People were not forking money. Then, thankfully, the government stepped in 
and gave them aid, gave them state aid. And, uh, well, that helped. So that's the bit about COVID. Now, the fact that government gave you state aid, did it affect the journalists? I think yes. Some of them, certainly it did affect them. So they weren't e so easily, uh, they didn't feel comfortable, let's say, criticizing so much. So they lowered, in my opinion always, they lowered their criticism. Now it has picked up again because there's reason. Mm -hmm. So many things are coming out now about the political situation in our country that things are changing now. So we have two things. We, can, we have COVID and the drama that's being unfolded minute by minute, day by day, about what's happening in the political scenario, in the, in the case of the hospitals deal, in the case of electrogas. So all of a sudden, we have a lot to write about, we have a lot to discuss. And if you go on to the social media, the traditional media, the online uh, newspapers, yes, then uh, they're full of new news. They're, I feel they're less afraid. I feel a change now. In the past month, I feel there has been a change. Oh, the silver lining then of, of the virus. Maybe as a result of the virus, not necessarily. I think the attitude changed, the media and the journalists changed the moment that uh, some people were marked and said, you are being investigated. Mm -hmm. The moment that happened, then journalists might, must have felt a sigh of relief because now we have something tangible. We cannot be sued. We cannot be slabbed. We cannot be given an international uh, mandate in a court mm -hmm. in America or in some other countries. I do you think that the influence of international media has helped this? Oh, greatly, greatly. Because the, the fact that independent and international journalists were speaking out about the case, what's happening in Malta, about the corruption that's happening in Malta, then our journalists had a shoulder to lean on, had support. And also the things that were coming out in the proceedings, in the courts, in our law courts, also gave them a lot of ammunition. They couldn't remain silent in the face of all this happening. And they were encouraged and they started writing. And I believe that the media landscape today is very different from the media landscape of three months ago. I mean, hmm. I, I would agree. I would also go one step further. I'd say it is the duty of journalists to reveal this Information Again, I reiterate, so long as it's information and not misinformation. Definitely, definitely. But in the light of, and part of me feels a bit bad for mentioning this for some reason, but in the light of Daphne's murder, are journalists, local journalists, not more afraid? The moment it happened, they were very afraid. For the year that follows, they were very afraid. For the second year that follows, they were less afraid. For the third year, now, they are speaking up. And that's good. It should have been like this three years ago, not now. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, a journalist has, like we said before, they have a duty 
to reveal disinformation and silencing, not just locally, I would also like to say even internationally, where journalists have been targeted. This is, I feel it's a big red flag for democracy. Definitely. Definitely, if you shut up journalists, democracy falls, crumbles. Yes. You cannot have a democratic country without independent journalism. You cannot, no matter what anybody says, transparency, yes, knowing the owners of the organizations, yes, but the journalists, first and foremost, must be safeguarded. They must be safe, they must feel safe, and they must feel free to say what they think is true and false and back it up by facts. Mm -hmm. But you said um, that this this courage, it sounds like, that they've developed in the three years since the murder, it should have been there from the start. Yes, that's exactly what I said, yes. I feel that, uh, peop that the journalists were afraid. And rightly so. I mean, who would blame you? Mm, who would blame you? So, yes, I think they were afraid. Are you saying that they should have overcome that fear rather quickly? as in it took them too long to sort of get riled up again and start. Yes, this is my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I understand that it's very difficult, especially uh, when you hear bad things happening to journalists in Malta and abroad. It is a normal reaction mm -hmm. that you feel fear. It's a normal reaction. I understand that. I understand that facts were not coming over. They're being filtered. So two things happened. Time passed and we, were get, we are now getting information. So two things changed. Because uh, a year, uh, three years ago, we didn't have the information we have now. Mm -hmm. Journalists couldn't write about what happened to Daphne and the corruption that we know there is. Three years ago, for the simple reason that the Panama Papers were still being studied. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of bits of information mm -hmm. and until there was a consortium who were going through all this information filtering it out and passing on information to our journalists that took time so there were two things in that year fear and lack of information right. in the second year less fear a bit more information in the third year much less fear and much more information and that is good journalism. That is what we have now by most journalists. I'm, I'm glad that we mentioned um, what makes a good journalist and the duty is that the journalists have. Uh, if I may ask, are journalists or rather should journalists be held accountable for what they write as well? Well, they are, I imagine. They right? are accountable and they can be, be taken to court and there is there's the law, the law about libel and all that. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you say, if journalists say something which is not true and offend somebody, the, the, whoever is offended can take the person to court. Mm -hmm. So there's always this, uh, this rule to take. However, what I disagree is slap issues. Okay. Because people who are powerful, powerful organizations can serve a slap uh, action and you are nailed you can stay inside just to clarify a slap is a strategic lawsuit against public participation yep where you're taken to court not in your own country but in another country where the expense is so great that you cannot afford to fight it not even your organization can afford to fight wow. it 
So if you're a journalist and you have a slap uh, issue, then the whole organization falls down. So it's kind of a bit like a trump card. Yep. Has the phenomenon of zombification you described in the for the price of a coffee occurred? And going beyond the idea of contributing by the price of a coffee, what other things that we can do as individuals to help safeguard independent journalism? So yes, um, I think we can help financially by giving a donation to the media organization of your choice. We can help by reading, commenting, and being active digital citizens. Mm -hmm. That is very important. And tied with this, in our schools, we must have media literacy. Mm -hmm. I wish to end on that note. We've been harking on this in, since 1984 when we started our first study. Unless we discuss with our young students from the very young age, from a very young age, how important it is not only to be passive users of media, but to be active users of media. Active users of media means you contribute to the discussion. You do not believe everything you, 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 you hear. You ask questions. So if we uh, instill in our young people the idea that they must be active digital citizens and contribute to the media and argue and comment and not accept anything and not just listen and be passive, but instead be active and use the media uh, well, well, then I think that would be a great contribution, more than giving uh, financial assistance to organizations. Maybe as a short-term measure, yes, we have to give financial assistance, but a long-term strategy must be introducing again, because it was there and it was removed, uh, introducing again media literacy. Now they have a few um, lessons in, the, in, in one of the subjects, but I believe, together with others, like Father Joe Borch, who initiated the, the, the project in 1984, it should be a subject taught in school, across the curricula, but also as a topic, because it is so very important to our independent thinking. I mean, I, I would like to think that this media literacy, part of it is done by, by literature, being able to analyze certain works of art, yes. written works of art, and looking at the facts, looking at the information, and then making up your own mind. Yes, that will help tremendously. And that's why uh, literature is still a compulsory topic in, 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 mm -hmm. in, in education, because that is exactly what literature does. It makes you an independent thinker. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, together with that, if we have uh, media literacy on, on so, uh, uh, how you can be an independent thinker on the social media, that would help as well. I like what you said about active versus passive contribution. And you said part of being active is commenting. I find that interesting because a lot of the commentary that I read, that's when I do read it, is very aggressive, attacking, and there doesn't seem to be room for healthy debate and exchange of ideas. Yes, that is very sad. I agree with you. Most of the comments are uh, hate messages, or if not so extreme, 
but they are very critical, very rude, very, very aggressive. Aggressive. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't referring to that kind of participation, <laughs> obviously. I was referring to an intelligent exchange of ideas. And if we disagree, it's fine. Mm -hmm. We don't have to all agree about everything. Yeah. That is not a possibility. But let's be civil to each other. But is that possible to do? Yes, it is possible if we train our young people to yeah. do it. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Lowry. It's been an, it's been an absolute pleasure.